Hey everybody, Rebecca here, your host, and today on the show we have Maureen Droney, who was an early A-list level recording engineer, and she was part of the huge music scene in San Francisco and worked mixing at the iconic Automat Recording Studio. And over the course of her recording career, which spanned decades, by the way, she worked making records with Aretha Franklin, Santana, Whitney Houston, Tower of Power, and like scads more. In total, her album credits weigh in at 110 projects. Currently, she is the senior managing director of the Producers and Engineers Wing at the Recording Academy in Los Angeles, which, yes, is the place that gives out Grammys. So our conversation wandered through her recording days, her mentors, her editorial writing work for Mix Magazine, and also what she's in charge of now. If you're looking for more Sound Girls podcasts, you can find a hundred more like Maureen's in all the normal spots. And as always, thank you for listening. So welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on today. We are absolutely grateful. I know that you are incredibly busy and you're in LA, correct? I'm in Los Angeles. Yeah. And you've lived there nearly all your life, it looks like. Um, no, actually. Um, I was born in Connecticut and I went to school in Boston for a while, not at Berkeley. I went to school in Boston for a while at Northeastern. And then I moved to San Francisco and I lived in San Francisco for a long time. San Francisco is a place that um, has periodically in history uh, been a, a real, uh, well, it's still an arts and music town, except that people can't afford it to live in San Francisco itself, and even in the suburbs of it now, right? But they'd had various times in history, such as the psychedelic era, when all those artists were there. And in the 80s, there were a lot of bands that were up there and musicians that were up there, and they had the power to have the producers come to them. And so there was a time uh, when there was several thriving studios in San Francisco and the East Bay. So I was there for a long time, but that sort of started drying up the studio that I worked for, which was the best studio in town, the Automat, um, where Leslie Leslie, uh, Leslie trained, was one of the people who trained me. She was, uh, so we had two and at one point three women engineers there. Wow. And that was when, like what years are we talking? I started there in 1980. Okay. Um, and I was, and it closed in 1985. You know, we had always joked that it would make more money as a parking lot. <laughs> and ultimately, <laughs> it became a parking lot. Uh, but then it became condos, so uh, which probably made it, which probably made even more money as as so much in San Francisco did. But it was an amazing, wonderful time. And there were, you know, I worked with Santana. Santana recorded there a lot. I I did a, quite a bit of engineering for for him and the band, um, and a lot of funk bands, um, which Leslie Ann worked with mostly, The Whispers, and uh, was Frankie Beverly and Mays. I mean, just great classic funk and, and, and R&B bands. Uh, David Kahn. David, you, I was thinking you must know if you work with the Bangles, you probably know David Kahn. David Kahn, yeah. Was kind of a producer in residence there, um, so he was a mentor for me too. If we could rewind how you got into audio so early, because you were as you know one of the top women in audio in the '80s, mixing studio records um, and tracking and working and all kinds of things. Um, if you could tell me how, so you were in San Francisco, you got out of school. When did you get your first gig, and and how and why? 
like like so many engineers, um, I was a musician. Not um, I wasn't very good, but I was in um, a band and busked on the street. But I, you know, I, I was I was not a great performer, and I was not a great musician. And like so many engineers, you kind of figure out that you can work with really great musicians um, if you have another kind of job. Um, so my first job was working for an audiovisual company, and so I was on the road with them um, doing corporate audiovisual shows. Uh, so I did that for a few years and I got bored with it and I was lucky enough to get a job at the automat. Um, I knocked, I spent a lot of time knocking on doors at the studios that were in San Francisco first, and then something opened up at the automat. Um, and they hired me as a uh, assistant engineer. I was thinking I would wanted to be a studio manager, right? And I thought that's what it would lead to. But they had an opening for an assistant engineer. That's what I did. And I just kept going with it. You know, I got hooked. Yeah. Yeah. So you literally just knocked on doors, cold called, like like the good old fashioned way. And, and then you got hired as an assistant engineer, which is quite unusual. It seems most people get interns. Yeah. Well, I, I skipped a part where we recorded our band. Um, you know, we had a, a TIAC, a heavy old TIAC. Um, and we were, and we were storing it in the second floor, so we had to carry it up the stairs. It had a wooden case we built. It was so dumb. It had a heavy wooden case. We carried it up the stairs. Um, and so I started, uh, I was one of those people who also recorded the band or recorded our own band, you know? And, and, and I had audiovisual training from working at the audiovisual place, so I had some background, in, um, although I'd never worked in a recording studio. Was there a certain gig or a day or something where you just really felt like you arrived somewhere that it had changed, that your skill level had... I mean, maybe you could talk about the first time you worked with an A-list artist at the studio or... It was right away. Um, it was the, my, the first session I worked on was Sister Sledge. It was great. I was with the producer, Narda Michael Walden. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's an amazing uh, drummer um, and an amazing producer. He worked with uh, Whitney Houston and... Aretha Franklin, and he had a. He's still working. He's still around. He goes on tour as a as a drummer. He's he's an amazing character. That was the first session, and um, almost immediately after that, Fred Catero, who um, is an unsung hero engineer in the Bay Area, uh, I think he's still up there. Um, was one of the main engineers at the Automat, along with Leslie Ann. And the, um, the man who became my husband, Ken Kessie, was also a staff engineer there. Uh, and I would say, so right away, um, I was in on that uh, Sister Sledge session. And then you know, I'm, I'm going back in time in my mind. And then that, right after that was Santana working with Fred Cotero. Um, That was, I mean, it was real from the beginning. And I was, I, it, you know, I was so... Wanting, you know, we, we all wanted, and this is true of, of so many people um, in the business. And me, I don't think then was different than now about that. But you want to be great. You want to be good. You want to be, you know, you had to be good. You couldn't make a lot of mistakes. You you got you got one, you know, you got you could make a mistake once. You couldn't make that same mistake again. So mine was, uh, it was a Saturday, and Fred Catero wasn't coming in, and Santana wanted to just rehearse. 
So they had me in, and the band was a big band. It was, I was there, there were three percussionists, keyboards, Carlos and bass player. So it's five, six, seven, eight, or probably about eight people. Um, and they were just supposed to be rehearsing, right? So they were, the mics were on and they were coming up and of course they wanted, then they wanted to record. The MCI two track machines had two buttons that you had to push to record. <laughs> and you didn't know the second one? And I, I had only pushed the first one. So the whole band troops in to hear it. <laughs> That's a terrible moment. And it, you know, it happens to a lot of people, but it only happens to you once. And that never happens again. That's right. And it's happened to me too. And they were kind. They were kind. I mean, it, it was a rehearsal. You know, they could play it again and they weren't mean or anything or upset with me, but I was upset with me. And uh, and there was a rivalry. There were uh, uh, other a couple of other assistant engineers there. And we had a rivalry between us to be great and to get the good sessions. You wanted to get put on the good sessions. Um, Michelle Zarin was the studio manager for most of the time there. And she was a classic studio manager who had worked at Record Plant uh, and Record Plant Sausalito and just knew who to put with what session to make that session go well. She told me once that she put me on the difficult sessions. <laughs> because you were good. I was good, but also just my personality, I guess, was you know, for, for many years I used to put on my resume, uh, works, works well with difficult people until I was talking to someone about it. And they said to me, take that off your resume. You'll never work with anything else if you have that on there. But, you know, all, all, not, I don't know about all, but, you know, artists can tend to be what you might call difficult. But I think one of the things I really learned was it was because they were trying, they're trying to get somewhere and you're, unless you're really in the groove with them, you're in the way. Even You're there to do a job, right? But you're facilitating for them because they can't always articulate. And Carlos was really like that. He, he, he spoke in proverbs and flower language and um, he's just an amazing soul um but he couldn't always get across what he wanted to do like once he said to me when it was mixing something for him and he says now you're going to make the japanese garden you know it was one of those people or he would want me on the i was working with jim gaines a lot as the main engineer and i was assistant and then i would do you know overdubs or um something and carlos wanted me to do a mix he wanted the female essence right you had a for this, this song needed, and he wanted to try a female mixing it. You know, he's just so beautiful. But, um, but he could be, but it could be really hard. It could be really difficult because if you didn't please them, you know, they could, it, you had to help. Well, you know this, you had to, it's the vibe, right? It's it, absolutely. And, 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 and there's so many, there can be so many obstacles for a creator trying to get to that point. So that's why they can be difficult. It's not, they're not being difficult for difficulty's sake or to, you know, it's not personal. It's, it's your, it's, they're trying to find their muse and follow their muse and get to where they know they want to go, but somebody else may not. And sometimes they don't know where they're trying to get and it gets so nebulous. That's right. Creativity. So to just give them the road to walk on. That's right. That's obstacle free, like you're saying, is so much a part of our work. And some of the best producers like Phil Ramon or the great producers like Phil Ramon knew that. Phil would Phil would go down the road with the artist even when he knew it was wrong, right? Mm. I knew. Interesting. But it was like he, the artist was going to get to try that out and find it himself. Jim Gaines was like that too. 
And with an artist like Carlos, you um, had to because he just lives in a different. He lives in a different world. Yeah, and that's why he is what he is. He is who he is, which is transcendent. I am so lucky to have done the things that I've done, especially in the studio. Um, you asked about a moment. There was one working with Carlos Santana where he was playing a solo, and I was in the control room with him. Then I had that. And the solo, I think I don't think the, that so, in particular song ever came out, but his solo on it and I'm, what was so stunningly beautiful. I had one of those moments of, they're paying me for this. I'm here. I'm getting paid to listen to this. I can't believe I'm being transported at this moment. Oh yeah, I always tell the engineers, don't say that. Don't say that you you know you're you do it for free or that you would, but that's. That's how I felt. Yeah, those are those are some of the most magic times in our lives. I mean, it and if we ever, a lot of people don't ever have that moment where they're just in love with what they're doing. So it's it's a thrill um, that we get to work with creativity and the ambiguity of music making and the beautiful, you know, landing it as an engineer and all of that. So I'd love for you to talk about kind of your exit from the studio engineering world and because there's so much to talk about with you. Where did you go? Was that mix after that or what? Oh, they were, most of them were simultaneous. Oh, got it. Right. As an engineer, I was always interested in, in doing other things that, as well. Like I, I would be the, I, I enjoyed the work of um, documenting, you know, Back in the day when there was an assistant engineer who actually, uh, in in sessions, which doesn't happen so much anymore, except at the major studios maybe, um, who really documented the session. I was the one who did the track sheets. I was the one who knew what take we used. I was the one who knew which guitar solo, you know, and, and I would keep all those notes. And I was really proud of that. You know, I would know who wrote the song. I would know who their publishers were. And I would put all that together and... and give it to the producer um, or whoever was in charge of the session at the end of the session. So I ended up doing also part-time at for a period of time in my life of doing production coordination for um, for artists who are making recordings. I did uh, for a little bit with uh, Paula Abdul, a little bit with uh, uh, Rafael Sadiq and his previous band, Tony, Tony, Tony. It was just like mega pop stars then. I mean, just the biggest. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, so I did coordination for them, you know, mm-hmm. book their studios, um, book the musicians, did the union forms, all that kind of stuff. And I enjoyed that. Um, and I was always managing a band on the side or something, you know, I just, I enjoyed the other aspects of the of the music industry as well. And, you know, there were slow periods as an engineer where... Um, which are scary and kind of changed your life because you're always, I was talking about that with Cameron Craig, head of the Music Producers Guild in England, an engineer, of course. We were talking about that, about how it's always about the next gig, you know? That's right. Because you want it, you want to work because you love your work, but also because you, you, you know, you're trying to make a living. So it was always about trying to fill, fill in. And I had been an English major in college, um, so at one point, I um, I was still an engineer and still learning, um, and I started thinking about engineers didn't get enough credit. You know, they didn't get enough um, 
It was actually an engineer called Don Murray that inspired me. He uh, d- did a lot of, and still does, um, still works a lot. Um, it sort of, I don't want to pigeonhole him as a jazz engineer, but he did foreplay and a lot of great jazz music, and he was an incredible engineer. But people didn't know really about that, right? He hadn't won Grammys yet, I think, so he wasn't famous. He just was really good. And I thought, why doesn't why don't more people know about him? So I pitched a story on him to one of the magazines. It was REP, Recording Engineering Production. Recording Engineer Producer existed at the time. And they bought it. So I did that. And you wrote, you did the interview, you did the interview and everything. Yeah. Yeah, I did the interview, transcribed it, wrote it, and um, and uh, and then I forget how it happened. I must have pitched something to Mix and started writing for them, and then they asked me if I wanted to be the LA editor, because at that time they had a New York, LA, and I think San Francisco editor, right? Um, so that just meant, um, you know, it was part-time, right? I would just... Uh, go around LA to all of the studios and manufacturers and engineers and producers and see what they were doing and write a, a, a monthly column along with some features and things like that as well. So think about how wonderful it is to do that. You, you're doing interviews, so you get it. It's a way to become instantly friends and ask all the questions you want to ask of somebody. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I, I just knew everybody, and I knew all the studios, and I loved, you know, it was my life. And I was still engineering, and um, <laughs> I cobbling my life together. I also worked for um, Tower of Power for quite a while as um, their sort of office production coordinator. So, and slash sometimes engineer when the horn section uh, was doing a session. You would record it? I would be the, rec- I would record for them. So... Uh, and the rest of the time I would be, you know, I would be doing the carnets for their tour and doing their book t- tour bookkeeping and all of that. But I love that too. I went to Japan three times, Europe, you know, some things with them, some tours with them. So I got to be on the road a little bit. So how did you get from San Francisco to LA? Was that just a choice, a personal choice or? Um, I was working with a producer named Preston Glass who had um, had a hit with Kenny G um, as a sort of... Uh, producer as part of Narda Michael Walden's team. And he was working out at Narda's studio. By then, the automat was closed. Narda had moved to a studio called Tarpon that he opened um, in the North Bay in Marin County. And um, Preston Glass was a songwriter work- and songwriter producer working with Narda. And I, he ran... This is, this is a good story, I think, that shows the things in your life that happen, at least for me, and how, you know, it was a slow period for engineering. And uh, Janice Lee, who managed Tarpon and who had been the desk person at the Automat, um, called me up and asked me if I would uh, come and um, take over while she went on vacation for a couple weeks, right? Take over the front desk, which was a step down, you know, sort of, you know, you, you, you're an engineer and you're going to do the front desk, but, um, you know, I like to work <laughs> and I needed to work. So I, I said, sure. And I, uh, so I did it for the two weeks she was gone and Preston was there. Preston remember, you know, oh, Hey, you know, want to do some engineering for me? 
And so we we worked together. We started working together, and I was doing all of the sessions for him. And he was busy at the time, right in the Bay Area. So we worked at Fantasy. We worked at the Plant Studios. Um, just had a busy streak. And then one day he said, "I'm going to move to LA. Do you want to continue to be my engineer and come and move to LA?" Because um, that's where the work really was. It, you know the the era of the '80s when there was so much happening. Then this was by this was the '90s by then, right? I guess. So you packed up and went. Packed up and went. I got a studio apartment with a mattress on the floor. <laughs> so rock and roll. And the safest neighborhood I could find because I was working those crazy long late overnight. You no. Know, where did you Where did you live? Near the Beverly Center, so it's kind of central Los Angeles. We we were working at all different studios in LA, so you know it seemed like the best place to be. It was centrally located, and we did a lot of work together. Okay, so fast forward. I mean, I know you're an author. Now you work at the Academy. If you, What would be the next step that we would want to cover for you? Was it the Academy? Then the final thing I did before I worked for the Recording Academy was I went to work for someone who owned um, three studios, Gary Bells from Memphis. He, has, he owned House of Blues Studios in Memphis, House of Blues Studios in Los Angeles, what it what for a while was House of Blues Studios in Nashville, and he and Alan Sides also made Oshaway Nashville, which was a church that they actually they such big thinkers. <laughs> um, they they had turned the church into an incredibly beautiful studio, which is now owned by Belmont University and is part of their audio training program. So could we talk a little bit about your experience at the Recording Academy and the produ- their engineering and producing wing? Around 1998, the, mu- uh, the um, Music Millennium Copyright Act was passed. And the Music Millennium Copyright Act created a stream of income from internet radio and satellite radio for creators. And record companies. So they, they uh, so there was a as as the industry was trying to deal with the the changes that were happening in digital audio, right? Absolutely, just huge disruption. Napster, everything. Yes, it, it was really before before streaming and all these streaming services that have come along, right? But there was there was there was digital radio. There was um satellite radio and because the United States has never paid royalties for performance right so the example is when Aretha Franklin sings sang when Aretha Franklin sang respect Otis Redding's and Otis Redding's heirs get paid because songwriters have royalties on performance, right? But performers, Aretha, when you hear Aretha on the radio, Aretha's not getting paid. She doesn't get anything. Mm. I've always wondered about this. Because the United States, uh, among North Korea, China, uh, I forget what the other couple of countries that don't pay performance royalties, the United States is one of them. So, and we also, because of that, don't collect the black box royalties that are 
collected for American works that are performed in those other countries, right? In Europe, England, um, everywhere. So they don't, re because we don't pay it, they, they don't reciprocate. So that's a whole thing we've been, and people have been trying for years to get um, performance royalties. So a, a limited uh, amount of it was that with the broadcast industry fights this because the broadcast industry calls it a tax, a, a fee, something new they don't want to pay for it. So they're very strong in the United States and they have kept that from happening all those years. But around 1998, in the Music Millennium Copyright Act, which addressed some other issues, there was a performance right made for satellite radio and um, internet radio. If it was, if it was pure play internet radio, where you were interacting and choosing, right? Interesting. So that new right was established, but the way the right was established was fifty percent went to the record labels, forty-five percent went to the artists, the main artist, and five percent was divided up between the studio musicians and the. Um, background singers that's paid through the AF of M SAG after a fund. And the producers were left out. Nothing. So, th so there is a music producers guild in England, right? And uh, so Ed Cherney, who is a very, uh, was a very popular and talented um, engineer slash producer who passed away in 2019. Um, oh, I didn't know he did. Yes, he's a uh, everybody. Every, everybody's best friend. Eddie, Eddie's yeah. amazing, and um, at an AES show, right sometime around ninety seven, ninety eight, Eddie was hanging out with the British engineers for the Music Producers Guild, and they were in a bar during AES and getting drunk, and they challenged him. They said, "You know, we have a guild. You don't have anything in the United States," and. This thing had just happened with the performance rights where the producers were left out. So they were becoming politically aware that they had been ignored and lost a stream of income. So they challenged him to, and he said, I'll do it. And um, then they went back to their hotels. And the next morning, one of them called in and said, Hey, you said you were going to do this. We're serious. You need to do this. And so he did. So he took it on and he. Went to uh, Al Schmidt was the first one he went to. Al was member number one of the Music Producers Guild of the Americas. Unbelievable, the story. Wow, yeah. it changed everything. And then Eddie went after all the other producers. He went to Nashville and met all the guys there and signed them up. It was a dollar a day. Um, so it was, I guess they were paying $365 a year to belong. But they couldn't really... Uh, do it because they were all working engineers, right? And they didn't have, they couldn't generate the money that they thought they could um, to keep it really running and to do what they needed. And since most of them were Recording Academy members already, um, it just around um, 2000, 2001, 1998. It's, they're 20, we, we were 20 years old. The wing was 20 years old last year. So, so they need, they wanted an executive director. Well, actually, they wanted a director for it at that point, and um, I was in the running for it, and I was one of the people who then decided I didn't want to do it. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I like I'm working for Mix and I'm doing production coordination and working for Gary, and um, I was happy with my life. 
so I didn't. But um, uh, there were quite a quite a few people who didn't think it could be done. Um, it was it, it took a while to get off the ground um, and and running. Um, Leslie Lewis uh, was the director. She was uh, amazing. Uh, she said uh, did such a great job with it. Um, but it was struggling because of the trying to integrate a, uh, a a group of in very independent people who are independent contractors and used to doing doing uh, getting a lot done right uh, quickly uh, in the studio usually uh, so so folding that into a a, a large organization um, that has um, a set agenda uh, and um, a lot of things to do didn't work very well at first. So at a certain point, it was revamped, and uh, we had a we uh, added. They wasn't me then. They added uh, chapters around the country because we have the Recording Academy has twelve chapters around the country, and they added committees. Of producers and engineers in all of those chapters, which is a wonderful thing. They're the, the backbone of the producers and engineers. When uh, and at that time, uh, they started looking. Leslie Leslie Lewis had left, and uh, they were looking for uh, an executive director. And this time, I was ready. Um, it seemed like a a good idea to make that transition. And I did, and I was lucky enough to ultimately get the job and to bring all of the skills that I had learned from all of the things that I have done to this job and more. The job involves um, working on things that are important to producers and engineers and the industry at large. Can you give an example of just some of the work that you've done? So the Recording Academy is the membership organization behind the Grammy Awards, right? We present the Grammy Awards. Um, and the Producers and Engineers Wing uh, is about uh, 3,400 members um, uh, of, of producers around the country and some of them out of the country. Uh, at the Recording Academy, people always wonder, what do you do the other 365 days of the year that isn't the Grammy Awards? And they are pretty all-encompassing because we're on a yearly calendar. They start all over. Usually the show is in February or late January, and it starts over again in March. Um, you know, submissions are happening now in July for um, the 65th Grammy Awards, which will be in February. So it's an all-year process with review committees and um, entries and uh, just... Uh, all the things that go along with something that's as big as the Grammy Awards. The Academy does a lot of lobbying. We have a, an office in Washington uh, lobbying for creators' rights. We are the only organization that represents all of the creators, the songwriters, producers, artists, um, uh, musicians. All of those are our voting members uh, and also represent in that way our our are professional, we call them members, who are not actual voting members for the Grammy Awards, but are a part of the Recording Academy. That would be managers, record company people, um, studio managers, people who work with the creatives. 
So we have a lot of agendas. We are always trying to help people in music. We have Music Cares is our charity, which you probably have heard about, um, which you don't have to be a member of the Recording Academy to be helped by Music Cares. All people in the music business, if you've been in the music business for five years, they they will help you if you're in need. Um, it's a wonderful thing. And we have the Grammy Museum as well, which if you've never been, is a really fabulous gem of a museum in downtown Los Angeles. It is. Anybody, everybody should go to it. It is so, uh, it just gives you such rich history of the whole thing. It's beautiful. And the honorary, you know, statuses of people. It's incredible. Yeah, it's great. And and they also have a lot of performances there. You know, our artists coming through town um, stop and play and talk. It's it's an amazing thing. So So we have a lot going on, but it's all mission forward is uh, helping music creators and culminating in the Grammy Awards and recognizing um, the best in music. I'd love for you to talk about kind of the status of music today for creators and musicians, given that the streaming services, there's really not a lot of revenue. You're either a top yielder or you. it's hard to even make any money because it feels like the middle the middle ground artist has really been removed from the equation with record labels not having the budgets they had. What what do you think in non-fungible tokens possibly being a way to reclaim revenue? But what if you could just give some some insider context to where we are right now with music rights? Well, there's a lot going on. Um, the songwriters in particular right now, as you probably know, are um, they just got a raise. But it's so complicated because um, this, the streaming services are still fighting the raise that they got the last time. Um, the rate courts, right? The rate, the rate courts, I think it's every four years that they look at it. Oh, well, the decision was made to give the songwriters a raise four years ago, but uh, the streaming services are fighting that. And now we're at the, now they've been awarded another raise, but they haven't even, the first one is in litigation or in in question, right? It's a hard future. Yeah, people don't, and it's okay if it's not really your wheelhouse, but I wondered if you had any thoughts or any info on all that. I don't. It's, it's, it's so hard, you know? It's just so hard. It, the pandemic taking away live, um, live is back, but there's issues. Um, what kind of issues are you seeing? Oh, the fact that there aren't enough, there's not enough people for crews. There's not enough, you know, a lot of people left the industry, the really good people. That's right. The people who, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't exist and they found other jobs and they're not going back. You know, but the buses, everything is, is, is short supply for the chores that are happening or has been. Um, it's just hard, but, but it's never been easy. You know, and if you're an artist or if you're an engineer or someone who cares so much about your craft, which is why I love the engineers, they they didn't get into it for the money. It's a calling. You know, it's 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 um it's just something they love to do and hopefully they can make a living at it. But uh, I always I'm just being frank with you, but I always say if, you know, to be an engineer, you kinda need either another source of income, you know, a spouse who 
works, something else to keep keep it together because it's 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 not easy. Nope. It's feast or famine a lot of times. And then as you get into your forties that that really wears thin, for me at least it did. So you know, that whole saying of when you said the recording academy started, but first they weren't sure if all these freelancers could run it. it. That's that's exactly where I've heard a lot of stories end up is is getting something a little more stable, but that's related, and you kind of have a hand in all in all facets of music, whether you're engineering sometimes or working, you know, somewhere full time as well. But uh, it is it is a love story. I agree with you. It is, and it is for me. You know, I love that um, Michelle Zirin, who um, I mentioned before, who was the manager of the Automat used to say she loved the engineers the most because they suffered the most. And Rosemann Churdy, Ed Churdy's wife, who uh, ran Record Plant for many, many years, she's Ms. Record Plant, um, or the, the queen, um, the same. You know, loved the engineers, married one. <laughs> you know, as far as our, kind of as we wrap up here, I would love for you to give... Um, Maybe some advice to people who are engineers out there on resources or just maybe just something you learned that you wish someone might have taught you or told you, maybe mid-career or early career. Thinking one of my interviews with uh, Jimmy Douglas, who is the most amazing engineer. He was around at Atlantic Records in New York. Um, uh, as a, In high school, he was working there part-time, you know, started with... In, the library, but sitting in on Aretha Franklin sessions and things like that. And it's still, he's based in Florida. He's still working all the time on very modern music. And I asked him once in an interview, what was the most important trait for like an assistant engineer, someone starting in the studio? And he said, willingness. <laughs> I never forgot that. Willingness. I don't know. I think that the camaraderie of um, of people who work um, behind the scenes, it's I'm sure the same with the road and with touring. You know the camaraderie and and the excellence of the people who do these jobs. Uh, one of the magazines I wrote for was um, Pro Lights and Staging News and uh, Front of House Terry Lowe's uh, magazines, and I interviewed so many tour managers and front of house guys and. I used to say that if they ran the world, if production people ran the world, it would run so much better. Because when you look, and you know this, when you look at the the rate of, uh, the low, low rate of accidents and things that happen and how good people are at their craft, and how, how good they have to be, um, it's astounding. Um, that's an interesting point. I don't think any guest has ever brought that up, that it is dangerous what we do and the low rates of incidents and, yeah, and, and the dedication it takes to, be, to do what we do. That's an, that's an unbelievable trait. Yeah. Some, of, uh, some of that has changed like, due to the pandemic and other reasons with so much touring going on. And there, there have been accidents and things. And part of that is because there are enough people who are as qualified as they had been in the past, right? There were more of them and not quite as much to do, not quite as many shows, right? So with so many shows and not enough of the well-trained, really great people to go around. So, you know, there's so much pride involved in it, pride and camaraderie, and that's what makes people do it and stick to it. Absolutely. 
I guess my last question would be, so I ask this of every guest, if what's your desert island record top to bottom, what could you recommend our audience listen to that's just still a favorite of yours or a new favorite of yours, but something that's a full length record? Oh man, a full length album? I know, hard to imagine these days, right? <laughs> Everybody just puts out singles. Van Morris's greatest hits. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm with you. I'm so with you on that. I love Van Morrison. Into the Mystic. <laughs> okay. That's a song, not an album, but it's on his greatest hits album. So Maureen, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're absolutely an incredible contribution to the music industry and women as an engineer and as an author and as so many. We didn't even cover your book, but uh, look up her book. Um, and that's going to be coming out or is it out? Oh, no, the one on Al Schmidt is out. It's called uh, Al Schmidt on the Record, The Magic Behind the Music. Great. Yeah, so check out her book, too. And um, thank you again for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Rebecca. Thank you. The executive producers of the Sound Girls podcast are Becky Campbell and Susan Williams. The episode was produced by me, Rebecca Wilson, and edited by Fendel Fulton. Our theme song was written and recorded by Jess Fenton, and we send a big thank you to our sponsors, QSC, who likes Sound Girls, also wants to help empower you with the right tools, support, and services to help you create impactful connections. Find out more info at soundgirls.org and qsc.com.